When I was a kid growing up in Jersey, uh, anybody who was a hoot or really funny or something, uh, we'd call him a riot. Ladies and gents, uh, this guy's a riot in more ways than one. Bob Dylan. Oh, help me in my weakness, I heard the drifter say, as they carried him from the courtroom and were taking him away. My trip hasn't been a pleasant one, and my time, it isn't long, and I still do not know what it was that I've done wrong. This is Pod Dylan, the show that celebrates the work of Bob Dylan, one song at a time, proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, the freewheeling Rob Kelly, and joining me to talk about Drifter's Escape from 1967's John Wesley Harding. His fellow Bobcat, Wayne Walker. Hi, Wayne. Hi, Ron. Great to have you here. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. I've I've listened to so many hours of your voice <laughs> in my ears as I do yard work or as I walk through the grocery store. <laughs> now, I, you know, now I always talk back, but now, you know. Oh, no. <laughs> you idiot. No, that's not what that means. Uh, now you get to do it in person. So yep. <laughs> look forward to that as we interpret Drifter's Escape, which is just an absolutely terrific song. But we'll talk about that in a moment. Of course. Wayne, as you just said, you're familiar with the show, so we got to start at the top. What is your Bob Dylan origin story? Okay, so first, like some context is uh, I'm 54 years old, so I was born in 1968. So, you know, right as I was kind of in middle school, it was right around 1980, and uh, just like classic rock seemed like it was a big thing back then. So I listened to the classic rock radio station uh, here and kind of was just into classic rock. Uh, although not Bob Dylan yet, it was, uh, you know, The Who and Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd, things like that. The Doors even for a, a brief spell. Um, but uh, so I was I was really into the whole classic rock thing. But it was a couple of years later, I was in high school and uh, I just started really paying attention more to Bob Dylan. I was aware of some of his songs like, you know, it wasn't, you know, like a Rolling Stone, of course. And uh, for some reason, our local radio station, the DJ liked to play Positively Four Street, uh, which is, you know, not a big hit, but, you know, I guess it, uh, the DJ liked it, so he played it a lot. So I was, I was familiar with a few of the songs. And then um, a friend of mine uh, who I knew from church, he, uh, he said, hey, I got this Bob Dylan album, and I don't really like it. Um, you know, do you want it? And I'm like, yeah, sure. Um, cause I knew enough to know, you know, that I wanted it and, uh, it was infidels. So, uh, he had bought the album at a Christian bookstore of all places. I guess they didn't get the memo about the Horn again trilogy. You know, they just went ahead and ordered the next one. Sure. And, makes sense. Based on the last three records. Sure. Why not? Yeah. So, and then he got it and you know, I don't, I don't think it was his taste in music and certainly wasn't the, the, the content he was looking for. And so he passed it on to me and it, it just hit me like a thunderbolt. I mean, it was, uh, you know, obviously incredible songs. Um, I really enjoyed his delivery at that time, you know, in the context of all the different voices, you know, that the, the infidels voice, uh, you know, is hits me just right. Um, so I really liked that. Of course, then I started kind of reaching out, looking for other things, uh, soon after, uh, my brother, my older brother, who was away at college by this point, he got me biograph for my birthday. And that was, that was, that was the end, 
you know? <laughs> I mean, just between the liner notes and the booklet, you know, of course, this is all pre-internet, right? So, it, you know, I just, it was like a graduate class in Bob Dylan and uh, just, you know, I was a little bit, I think even for for a long time, because the songs weren't sequenced in any kind of chronological order or anything like that, I, it was just all a big toss salad for me, just all the different eras and songs, but, uh, but Biograph sealed the deal. And, uh, <laughs> and I, I fell hard for, you know, the lyrics, the vocals, just everything. Biograph comes up a lot uh, for people of a certain vintage. You and I are very close in age. And that that's a big thing that if you're just getting into Bob in like the eighties, that's the set you get. First of all, it was the only real big set to get, but it, it, it offers, it really is like the greatest possible, a deep dive into the guy's world. And I remember the early knock on that set was that it, that it was out of order and people were like, why is it out of order? That sucks. And now I think over time, I think that choice has, has borne out that is actually a smart thing to do because it does, it, it doesn't, um, it doesn't throw you like a lifeline. You know what I mean? It doesn't give you any context for the evolution. Uh, and I think that's kind of a positive thing because it just throws you like, whoa, we've got abandoned love and then this and then that. And it's just all over the place. And it, it, to me, it, it just underscores even further. Like, God, what this guy is just all over the place. This is all the different things he can do in the space of just a couple of songs. So I, I think it ended up being a smart move to not have it chronological. Yeah, you know, also in retrospect, and, and they couldn't have planned this, but just like the booklet and the liner notes just teased forward just things that I wouldn't experience for years or even decades. You know, just if you remember right, uh, the, in, the, in the, the material, it talks about, you know, the Judas and I don't believe you. You know, it talks about that dialogue, although you don't hear it on the record. It kind of teases that that's there. And I'm like, man, I wish I could hear that someday, hmm. you know, which, which we would. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. even, even like, um, you know, it talks about Dylan introducing a song, you know, it used to go like this and now it goes like that, or it used to go like that. And now it goes like this and you don't hear it, but it's there. And, you know, ISIS, obviously, you know, being able to see that eventually, you know, with the Netflix documentary. Mm-hmm. So there were just all these little teases in Biograph, which of course just were part of his, you know, legacy. And then, you know, how lucky are we that we eventually get, you know, we get so much of that picture filled out eventually by the bootleg series. Oh, it's yeah. It's unbelievable. Um, <laughs> yeah. The, uh, and it's funny to think like the, that those are only six years apart. Those two sets, you know, like right. by Graf is 85 that, you know, the, the bootleg series really, again, that, that, I, I think for me, that might have been the moment. That might have been the set that I, I was already a rabid fan by that point. I had bought all the records. But I think getting the bootleg series in 91 was probably the thing that just, as you say, like that was the end. It was just like, oh, my God, there's so much more to even than what I've already heard. And knowing there were going to be more sets, it just and plus, of course, as I've, I've said before, it features my favorite Dylan song of all time on that set. So that was really the thing that just went, oh, man, I'm just. Oof, you know, uh, and uh, again, you know, we're, we're up to like 18, 19 sets later. <laughs> we're just a month out from the time out of mindsets. I mean, you know, you're almost like, when does he have time for all this stuff? You know, <laughs> like on top of yeah. it, he's he's doing remaking uh, wrought iron uh, sculptures and he's writing books on music. And you're like, God, the guy's just 
presumably he has a a full life, you know, and he does a hundred concerts a year on top of it. But I mean, does he have time for like personal life? He must, but man, he is just a creation machine. It's just unbelievable. Yeah. You know, one thing about when, when I did eventually get bootleg series one through three, like I, I got a CD player, you know, right around the same time I got those CDs. And uh, I remember like, just, I have vivid memories of going through the third CD and just song after song, after song, just, you know, it just kept getting better and better. Yeah. Blind Willie Mattel, <laughs> just everything. And and then, you know, at the end of it, I'm like, well, you know, that's great. But I mean, obviously, he's at the end of his career. And obviously, <laughs> they totally emptied the vaults to fill up these three CDs. That's it. And There's so, nothing left. Right. So, you know, it was kind of bittersweet. But the joke was on me, of course. <laughs> It's great. Yeah, I think I thought that too. I was like, oh, there must not be how much can be left. Well, <laughs> well, uh, let's see, 19 sets times three CDs times what everybody, yeah, it's 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 a really unbelievable. So uh, have you seen him live? Yes, eight times. Um, I was uh, a student at the University of Florida, and I missed my first opportunity to see him there in Gainesville. Uh, you know, Tom Petty, the Heartbreakers were with him and I was just broke, you know, I just, <laughs> I, I've heard, I hear that. So, you know, I had to prioritize. I did not see him, but then in 92, he came through Gainesville again and I saw him and, you know, related to what we're talking about today, you know, I, I went of course by myself and I was, it was at the basketball arena there on campus and I had like a golf pencil and a little piece of paper where I was writing down the set list as it went through. And, uh, you know, I, I recognized all the songs. I didn't have any trouble with that. Uh, until we got to this one song and, you know, it starts off with this groove and then it's like, help me in my weakness. And I'm like, I don't know that one. I just wrote, help me in my weakness. Right. But I was a computer science student. So I had access to Usenet, which was, you know, kind of the big bulletin board forum area before, you know, the, the worldwide web took over, but it was still like, you know, connected all these university campuses. So I went on rec.music.dylan, which was, <laughs> <laughs> where I spent a lot of time and I was like, here's the set list. And there's this one song, you know, and, and quickly they identified it for me, Drifters Escape. But I also, in my little write-up of the concert, I had that quintessential concert experience that I recorded in my post, which was, you know, at one point I just looked at the guy in the spotlight and I was like, this is the guy, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I wrote it down. And then, you know, once I listened to all of your episodes, I found that that's a universal experience almost for, yeah. for people that have listened to a lot of Bob Dylan before they actually see him live. Yeah. You know, in your brain intellectually that he's, that he's a real person. Of course he is, right? but there's just something to seeing that person that you've seen on television or wherever. And then he's standing there and you're like, God, I'm in the same physical space as this guy. That's yeah. just, that's just unbelievable. So, uh, well, that's awesome that, that that's how you played Drifter's Escape. And that, that was, <laughs> I, that's, that's, I love the school. You were able to, you know, scribble the line down and then people were able to source it for you immediately. Sure. Um, isn't, isn't Petty from, wasn't he from Gainesville? Isn't from yes, that area? Uh, okay. That's so that was like his hometown kind of thing. Yeah. Although by that time he was an LA guy. You right, know, right, right. But he was, that's right where he, he came from. I thought so. I knew, I knew he was from somewhere in, in Florida. So, uh, I'm really glad that you suggested this one because this is one of those songs that I, again, I know I like it because I've heard it a million times, but 
digging it out again and researching it and just kind of sitting with it again. And like, the other night I put it on and just like laid on the couch and just listened to it a bunch of times. I didn't do anything else. I didn't look at my phone. You know what I mean? And I was like, wow, this song is friggin' terrific. <laughs> I'm like, I, you know, it was almost like I didn't really fully appreciate this song is just absolutely great and it's so unique in so many ways in the context of his whole career and even on the album but why did you want to talk about it well you know first of all it's 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 deceptively mysterious you know in the sense that uh it doesn't have psychedelic imagery or anything like that you know that maybe you would expect from blonde on blonde or any of you know kind of the stuff that came immediately before this and it's not long and wine you know it's not brownsville girl or highlands or anything like that you know, it's just three verses, no chorus. Um, and musically speaking, and I'm, I'm not one to speak about music, but it's it's very simplistic, you know, as far as its harmonic, you know, the, the structure. But but just and from a from a literary point of view, there's a lot going on, and 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 yet it's still, you know, you can kind of understand it from one angle or another, but it still remains mysterious. So it's got that. You know, it's got that great quality, I think, that, that a lot of Dylan songs have. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it, outside of the, the Ballad of Frankie Lee and Judas Priest, you know, sure. all the songs on John Wesley Harding are three verses and out. You know, right. I mean, they are just so amazingly simple. And there's a, you know, it's well known now, like this, this is really one of the most unique experiences he had in terms of crafting a record and that it came so simply. Uh, I mean, thanks to once again, the bootleg series, we now know that there are alternate takes of songs that uh, for many years, I don't think anybody really knew existed, but even then there's like one or two takes and that's it. He was able to get these down. Apparently, you know, the legend was he wrote all these songs like on a train while he was driving again, incredibly romantic kind of notion. You know, imagine getting on a train and there's Bob Dylan, you know, sitting there with a, with a, with a a golf pencil, uh, scribbling, uh, you know, notes (laughs) down and you're like, Oh my God, there's writing songs. Yeah. He's sitting there like, uh, all along the what would be good watchtower that's good okay um but yeah i one of the things i love about this one first of all the tune is just one incredibly bouncy um and there's that alternate take on the bootleg series which is uh, i like very well uh, i like a lot but is um i don't think is as good as the one on the record i think he picked the right one for it in terms of it's just kind of it's just fun and it chugs along but it's you mentioned that there's a kind of like mysterious grimness to a lot of the songs on John Wesley Harding. And there are, especially all along the watchtower and wicked messenger and dear landlord. It's a lot of people being enslaved or people, you know, uh, people being under the thumb of someone else. And that's what that certainly goes on here. But uh, first of all, I love that it's, we are dropped into this story and we don't know who any of these people are. We don't know who the drifter is. We don't even know who the narrator is. This I heard the drifter say, I'm guessing he this person is someone in the town that's mm-hmm. just watching all this go on. But again, it's an incredible economy of storytelling is that he puts across in just that first verse I quoted, he sets up the whole situation. You know, all the characters, well, not all the characters, but you, you've got the setup. You know, it's kind of happening. And yet... I mean, he's only spoken a couple of lines and there's only a couple of words each and there's only two more verses to go. Yeah, the the economy of it is is just stunning. And of course, as, as you've observed with a lot of Bob Dylan's songs, you know, we don't know when this happens, if this is like right. the Wild West or, you know, the 14th century or, you know, we, we just don't know. 
then there's, <laughs> there's not a lot. You know, we know that they, they've got enough technology to build a courthouse, but that's about it. <laughs> right. Right. I mean, it doesn't, I mean, we know that Bob Dylan is certainly very sympathetic to drifters, to people right. on the margins of society. Uh, that, you know, I think he just naturally feels kinship with those people. Maybe, uh, as someone, you know, if I, if I dare to try to peer into his brain, someone who travels from town to town the way he does, he certainly probably perceives himself a little bit as that kind of guy, you know, like this gunslinger who comes in and entertains everybody and stuns them with his legendariness. And then boom, he's gone. He's back on the bus with the guys and it's, you know, just there you go. You have to just deal with it. Like everybody's sitting there stunned, but, um, I, I mean, again, I love the opening line to help me with help me in my weakness. And they carry him to the courtroom. We're taking my trip hasn't been a pleasant one. And my time, it isn't long. And I still do not know what it was that I've done wrong. Uh, you know, I like that the guy <laughs> that we got, you know, my time, it isn't long. And he's like, I still don't know what I was that I've done wrong. He seems to already know that the the fix is in against him. You know, right. my time, it isn't long. He kind of knows, all right, this is, this is, <laughs> this is it for me. And yet again, the, the tune and the delivery is so jovial. It seems to cut against that, which again, I sort of like that tension. Sure. And, you know, I, even, even at this point, you know, through the first verse of this song, you know, that I think he's, he's kind of playing with the listener as far as kind of guessing, you know, who this is. Right. You know, and of course, you know, when we were talking about Bob Dylan's song, you're like, was well, he singing about himself, right? Right? Is he, you know, is he talking about like how he's, you know, basically through rock stardom, you know, or the 1966 tour or whatever, that he's kind of gotten himself into a position that he doesn't want to be in. And he, he doesn't know why everybody's coming and going and asking him for things. Um, so we don't know if it, it's him. Of course, it, it's never that obvious, but, you know, maybe there's a little bit of him in there, the drifter. Uh, you know, and also just throughout John Wesley Harding, we see uh, biblical themes where it's like, oh, is this like, a, is this like a Christ figure? You know, is, is he, is he saying that, you know, his time has come and he's about to be judged. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And I think, I think both of those things kind of carry through as we, as we work through the song, you know, you, you kind of see that template for either one of them or obviously something altogether different. Yeah, I mean, you're in the again the opening verse. You're like, well, is this guy being put into the being drawn into the courtroom because he's done something wrong? He says, "I don't know what I was that I've done wrong." Doesn't mean he hasn't done something wrong, or is it just simply that he's a drifter? Is that he's an outsider, and they don't they don't this town doesn't like that? And so we immediately go to the second verse, and it says, "Well, the judge he cast his robe aside; a tear came to his eye. You fail to understand," he said. Why must you even try? Outside, the crowd was stirring. You could hear it from the door. Inside, the judge was stepping down while the jury cried for more. Now, in contrast to the drifter, who Dylan always romanticizes and and feels kinship with, at least in his songs, the judge, a judge is the opposite of that. I've mentioned in previous episodes, I don't think there's a single position in our society that appears more in Dylan's songs than a judge. I think, you know, more than doctors, more than lawyers, uh, more than a, you know, anybody else, it's judges. And Dylan's view, at least in his songs, of judges are almost always entirely negative. Judges are almost entirely corrupt, drunk with power. He has a very, very, again, within the context of his songs, a very dim view of judges. So as much as Dylan likes to romanticize the drifter, the judge he is very, very negative against. Now, 
The thing is, though, in this song, I when I was doing some research, there seems to be two different interpretations of the point where the judge has the tear comes to his eye. Some people seem to think the judge is being sympathetic, that this judge recognizes that the fix is in. There's nothing he can do because the crowd was stirring. And so he says, why must you even try? He kind of just throws his hands up and is like, look, there's nothing I can do. You're screwed. And then he says the judge was stepping down while the jury court, like he just absolves himself, not absolves himself, but he absents himself from any decision making. I always took it as the judge's, the tear comes to his eye. That's sort of, it's like a crocodile tear, you know, like he's like, he's pretending that he's got sympathy for this guy. I mean, he's even saying you're failing to understand why we're putting you on trial. Why are you even trying? Which is ridiculous. Of course, I want to know why I'm being put on trial. What are you talking about? How did you have you always taken it? Is the judge a sympathetic figure or not so much? Well, I, I've always seen him as a passive figure. Um, so I guess that would be on the sympathetic side in the paradigm you set up. But, you know, the fact that he he cast his robe aside and that he he's stepping down and it's the jury that's crying for more. You mm. know, I, I always took it as the judge rec- is recusing himself mm. or you know, in the, in the biblical sense of Pontius Pilate, like I find no fault with this man, that kind of thing. You know, I'm, I, I can't judge him, but it's the crowd that's crying for more. And, uh, you know, and, you know, the guy's got a Nobel prize for literature, of course, (laughs) these lines, you know, are just written so perfectly, you know, as the judge was stepping down while the jury cried for more and, you know, and, and, I don't know about you, and when you have these lines floating around your head, and then you watch the news, you know you you see these situations of, uh, you know, where there's there's angry mobs and things like that, and mm-hmm. just you know, I don't know, for me, it calls to mind these things uh, where you know where conventional justice is insufficient, that the mob cries for more. Mm. Yeah, I mean, the last thing you want when you're on trial is the jury crying for more presumably more punishment which is that's not good so i mean yeah this 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 fixes in from the beginning and so yeah it's i had never considered that the judge was at all sympathetic uh i mean that's interesting because that that is that's unusual again like i said dylan's judges i think in his songs like in um seven curses you know, I mean, they're, they're always miserable people. Right. Sure. Uh, although I don't even, is he a judge? In, yeah, he's a judge in seven curses. Like, I mean, they're always just, or the, the judge in, uh, um, um, Percy's song. Percy's song. You know, they're, they're always, they're always looking to convict this person right from the very beginning. So here again, he's even, maybe he does have a little sympathy, but the fact that he is not even presumably even trying says something, you know, that he's just like, well, what, what am I going to do? The fix is in. Again, we don't know the situation, but it, again, the the economy of language, again, is, I keep saying that that phrase, but it's just fantastic is that he's drawing such rich portraits of these people that were, you know, we've only known for about, what, about a minute and a half of the song to this point? Right. Yeah, you know, doing research for the song, they, uh, some people made a lot of the fact that uh, Dylan kind of revived the song, put it in his live set, after the Rodney King verse. Right. Right. And, you know, I can kind of see some of those themes, you know, and it doesn't quite fit. Right. It doesn't, you know, and the Rodney King thing was, but, but you do see there that the justice system, you know, didn't fulfill its job. Right. They mm. ended up acquitting the cops that, that beat uh, Rodney King and that who everyone saw on video beating over Absolutely. and over again. Yeah. <laughs> right. 
Right. And so, you know, there's not that perfect fit, but definitely you see that template of like when, when the justice system fails or recuses itself or withdraws, then the mob takes over. <laughs> right. Uh, so then we get to the, the third and final verse and it says, Oh, stop that cursed jury cried the attendant and the nurse. The trial was bad enough, but this is 10 times worse. Just then a bolt of lightning struck the courthouse out of shape. And while everybody knelt to pray, the drifter did escape. This is really, <laughs> when I listen to the song again, I just, this final verse to me is like, this is one of the best ways to end a song you could ever come up with. First of all, I don't know who this attendant and the nurse are. I'm guessing the nurse is the local, the local nurse. They don't have like this town might be so small. They don't even have a doctor. They just have a nurse you know, who deals with these things. That's how tiny this town is. She's got some sympathy for the drifter. Again, I don't know what attendant means, whether that's like a bailiff or a reporter or some, some functionary who is sitting there and they have sympathy for this, for this poor drifter. And then I, you know, I love the, the trial was bad enough, but this is 10 times worse, which is the idea of, I guess, you know, He's being, this is a show trial. That's bad enough, but these people don't even, they can't, even, the, the jury can't even be bothered with the show trial. You know, they're just calling out for blood. We're not even pretending this is a trial anymore. And then again, in contrast to what Dylan does with a lot of his other songs where there's judges, uh, you know, again, in Percy's song or Seven Curses or whatever, and you got these other songs where the criminal justice system is bent out of shape, to borrow a phrase from the, the this verse, and it's broken and it's not fixed in the context of the song it's that's dylan's pointing it out that this is broken here we get divine intervention we you know we literally get a bolt of lightning from the heavens which cracks the courtroom so the courtroom open i mean again i love his phrase struck the courthouse out of shape which is such a strange way of putting it um but we literally get the hand of god coming in and dropping some righteous vengeance on these people and they don't and not only that like they all they do is sit and pray uh that's their only response to this and while they're wasting their time doing that the drifter escapes and to me it's such a there's so much grimness on this record and this song is grim but again it's so bouncy and so catchy and then i love that you have this kind of happy ending that you know finally there's some divine intervention here and it helps the drifter escape i just and it it comes out of nowhere but it at the same time it seems like it fits perfectly so i just i i absolutely love this ending and you could never make you know some dylan songs they've talked about making movies out of them like lily rosemary jack of hearts or something like that tangled up in blue or whatever you could never do that with this but this would make a hell of a short because (laughs) i just love that ending so very much yeah, I mean, in in a lot of ways, it is a short story, uh, in in just kind of in this form, and uh, you know, you got that Deus Ex Machina going on there, you know, which uh, some people would say is like you know Dylan's motorcycle crash, you know, that that kind of gets him out of all his responsibilities and commitments and everything is going. Huh. On. Oh, that's interesting. I never thought about that. That's a- or if you're going to follow the kind of the Christ figure through the story, this would be. You know, obviously the like the 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 resurrection or whatever that the that Christ would escape from, you know, the earthly vengeance of the mob. So, you know, I think there's a lot of ways to to look at it. I think uh it's it is like 
it's it's kind of like that suspended ending where it's like okay well you 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 take it from here how you know whatever happened next <laughs> and yeah i love that the, the drifter did escape i mean the name of the song is drifters escape right <laughs> you already know right there what, what he's what's going to happen uh and again i love that there's no more information beyond that it's just the drifter escapes that's it he gets out of this town presumably never to return uh and this town is just sitting there kneeling and wondering why all this happened again i love that it struck the courthouse out of shape which is just such a, a weird way of describing it you know there's so many when you're hit by a bolt of lightning it's like it burst into flames or it you know out of shape it malformed it right. in a way you know like it's a piece of silly putty or something and it got twisted out of shape there's just something very interesting about the way um the way he delivers that line just again the, the line itself and it it really does it tells such a wonderfully complete story and it's so again it, it starts out it has such a grim sort of theme to it but it is, as you say, the Dewey's as mosh. I'm always bad at saying that phrase. I'm glad you said it ahead of me because I, I never know how to say it right. Um, but I just, again, it's just, it's such a terrific kind of fun ending to this dark story. Uh, and, uh, I, I again, what I was listening to it again, I was like, God, this is just, this is just terrific. This is just such a great song, uh, in the middle of this record. Now, as I mentioned earlier, we know that there's the one alternate take from the bootleg series, which is a little slower. It's got a little more. I think it's it it has a little more music behind it. That's for lack right. of a better phrase. Like I know that Dylan apparently asked Robbie Robertson to bring the band in and add some accompaniment to these songs, and it was Robertson who said they don't need them. These are these yeah. are great the way they are, and so we left them alone. And so the alternate take has a slightly fuller sound, and it's a little slower. But I prefer this one just because it's so upbeat and bouncy. What do you think of that alternate one? Yeah, I, I agree also that, that, you know, this, 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 the take that's on, you know, the official release is, is the one for me, just the, the, the mood and the emotion, you know, which is to me is different than the way it's delivered live. Uh, I don't know if we want to talk about the live. Yeah. Oh, but, absolutely. But, but, you know, and, and it's funny, I listened to a couple of different live takes, including, the one that's in Mast and Anonymous, which I hadn't watched in a very long time. <laughs> and I was amused by the fact that like, while they're playing, while he's playing the song, they cut away and there's like, uh, you know, Penelope Cruz and John Goodman, <laughs> and you know, they're all talking about the song and their interpretation. And of course it's total nonsense. Uh, with, you know, they're just, they're just, he's just playing with playing with us. Um, I like how you can interpret his songs in many different ways. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. While sitting between the Pope and Gandhi, yeah. <laughs> right. Yep. Uh, but but the the live version is kind of it's just got a lot more punch to it, you know, as far as the 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 instrumentation and and you know and the even the drums are very prominent. And then you know they kind of deliver a punch, and then he delivers the line, and then you know back and forth between the the guitar and him his vocals. And that's the way I heard it, you know, on that, that winter night in 1992. And then you know, <laughs> when I go and listen to things that are on YouTube for over the years, it, that, that seems to be like his, his live way of performing the song. Everything I heard kind of fit that same pattern. Yeah. Now I was looking, I'm looking here. Um, he's done the song. Um, uh, he's done the song live 
256 times. So not a ton, right. especially although it's relatively condensed because he didn't, as we just talked about, um, he didn't start doing it until 1992. So it's only, you know, the song was around for 25 years before he ever uh, decided to do it live. Uh, but yeah, I enjoyed the, the live ones that I, that I heard. There's a bunch of, there's a bunch of them on YouTube. And he said, there is that sequence from, uh, masked and anonymous where again you've got everybody uh, talking you know little clips there's one scene of uh, jeff bridges character listening to the song uh like I said he has not done it since 2005 though that's a whole 17 years ago so it's it's not something it's done uh he's done in a little while there are um some terrific covers of it there's one by joan baez that i thought was really good there's one by thea gilmore uh, that's really good too so it's it's something that other people have interpreted oh no, no i'm sorry not joan baez patty smith uh, on the uh, Terms of Freedom Amnesty International record. And that one's really good too. So uh, it's a song that other people have done done some things with. But yeah, it's it's really such a terrific little tale. And it seems so unusual for what I tend to think of his songs. And usually in his songs, the minute there's a trial, it's all going to go wrong. It's just, you know, uh, the gee, lonesome death of Hattie Carroll. You know, I mean, it's never going to go well. Uh, but this one, he obviously was feeling... A little bit better about things, at least when he wrote it, and uh, the well, idea. Yeah, I, I would I would take the point that that the trial failed, right? Mm-hmm. That that he that it kind of went according to course, right? And it really like literally required the hand of God to to set things straight mm-hmm. to to get you know a just outcome. So you know maybe some of that some of Dylan's cynicism was still there. You know that is as far as people are concerned. They can't get it right. right when it comes to justice. And, you know, it it's just requires this this act of God or nature or whatever that strikes the courthouse, courthouse out of shape for the, for the drifter to get his escape. That's true. Right. The view of humanity is pretty, pretty bad, pretty low. And and we all, we you know, generally don't get the hand of God coming down and <laughs> helping us with our problems. But I mean, at least in this little parable, it's it's nice that. You know, the bolt of lightning came in and did that and allowed the drifter to escape. And at least there are some people in the town, like said, the attendant and the nurse who are sympathetic. Not everybody uh, is is terrible. I mean, they can't seem to do a whole lot, but at least they are sympathetic. And they they not only are they sympathetic, they speak out. You know, they actually say something. Oh, stop that cursed jury. I mean, they're they're actually sort of risking their own necks by going against the crowd now. It's interesting. You talked about people have said that that's like a comparison. Maybe the lightning bolt to being the the motorcycle effect, like that you can look at look at it through this that prism. That this is a random. He was heading down this road, you know, literally and figuratively, and he needed to get off it. And then the accident conveniently happened at a time that allowed him to pull away and record this. And you think about it again when he put this out. This album comes out right at the height of the summer of love of psychedelia as you know uh of, of, of you know lavish production and you know the got you mentioned like the doors at the top of the show like the doors with all those weird meandery things that jim morrison like to put in his songs where he's yeah. reading bad poetry as the you know raymond's are just noodles on the keyboard or whatever and here's this country folk record you know and coming on the hills of the blonde on blonde it's just so totally opposite what anybody probably either expected or wanted from him was it a was it a hit? Was it a not a hit? It's certainly not known as like a disaster the way self portrait was, but it certainly wasn't like on a on a scale of Highway sixty one or Blonde on Blonde where they were like kind of like mega hits and it 
made his legend. This just kind of, I think, confused a lot of people. It certainly, I mean, obviously, Jimi Hendrix covering all along the Watchtower just a couple of days after its release cemented it in its history. But it's, I know, like, everyone, I think, regards it now as a great record, but I think it's still, it's just puzzling to a lot of people. Yeah, and and I would guess that it didn't do as well as Columbia would have liked, right? Because, I mean, he he did not tour to support the record. He was kind of out of the touring business for for quite a while. Uh, And, you know, given that it wasn't, blonde on blonde you know i think you know a lot of people might have just taken a pass it's not a you know it's not like there's any any uh, singles on this i don't i'm not even sure if they released any singles off this record but there's nothing that would really light up the radio especially in the context of all the other music that was going on at the time that was more kind of with the vibe of the summer of love and all of that stuff yeah there weren't there was no there were no singles from this uh, amazing when you think about how legendary along the watchtower has become. There's actually a quote here. He says, I asked Columbia to release it with no publicity and no hype because this was the season of hype. Dylan said, Dylan said, Clive Davis urged Dylan to pull a single, but even then Dylan refused, preferring to maintain the album's low key profile. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Could you imagine that would not fly nowadays? That would just absolutely not, you know, they'd be like, no, 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 we got to hype this. And he's like, no, no, no. Let me just put out this quiet little record here. It's fine. You know, even though I'm Bob Dylan and it's 1967. Sure. And, you know, I mean, we all remember that, you know, where we were when, when uh, murder most foul dropped in the middle of the night, you know, with yep. no fanfare. So he's, <laughs> he's still got that, you know, he's still got that kind of rascally uh, <laughs> spirit to him, you know, at 81 years old. <laughs> I remember that when I was going back through older episodes, doing some research. And I remember we did the first two uh, songs off of that, off the record, but we didn't know it was the record. When right. Tara Zook and I, we covered Murder Most Foul and then I Contain Multitudes. And they had to know at that point that it yeah. was off a, a record and they still didn't tell anybody. You know, <laughs> it was like, what is all this secrecy about? So, yeah, I think. You know, Bob gets Bob's Bob, and he, you know, I don't think anybody's going to overrule him. Certainly not at this point, and maybe certainly not in 1967. Maybe in the 80s when he was he was at a bit of a low ebb commercially. But at this point, imagine again, you could just put this quiet record out, and right. your record label's like, all right, okay, no singles, it's fine. Yeah, I mean, I guess your your point's well taken about the the mid 80s thing is like, you know, whoever set up that photo shoot for Empire Burlesque or whatever. You know, <laughs> Obviously, he was under somebody's sway at that point. Uh, Something like that, yeah. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, Drifter's Escape. It's just an it's just a terrific song and upbeat and bouncy. And again, I think it just has this marvelous ending. It it it, it fits in so well with these little parables that he was writing on this on this record. Again, uh, as we said, we're not even sure when this takes place or where it takes place. It's one of those indeterminate Dylan time period things. But uh, it's really one of my favorite songs off of off of this record. I just think it's, it just packs so much punch uh, for something that's about two minutes and 20 seconds long. Uh, I think it's just absolutely great. And it's that I would love if he would pull it out again. It's been a long time, but it would be fun to hear him do it again. And so uh, that's, that's great that it lodged itself in your brain um, when you, uh, when you saw him and like, now had you had John Wesley Harding by that point? Like, was it that you might have known the song, but you just couldn't match it in the context, or that was like the first time you were ever hearing it? That that was absolutely the first time I ever heard it. You know, I, 
when I when I was in school there, you know, I had like I said, I had the records that I mentioned, and I had I had picked up like real live on cassette, and then I was really excited when the new Bob Dylan record was coming out. Uh, you know, I was freshman year, and and knocked out loaded came out, so I ran down to the record store to <laughs> pick that up, and of course it was that was a little bit disappointing, <laughs> but I, I hadn't yet jumped backwards. You know, I, I was. I was I was like oh well, I'm gonna I'm gonna stay on the leading edge with him but eventually I made my way back there you know especially like this was the time when vinyl was dying right so a mm-hmm. lot of these record stores in the college town were like having death of vinyl sales so you know oh hard rain you know blood on the tracks you know just a couple bucks a piece so uh, yeah but I had not yet encountered this at all and so and I you know it was hard to. At this point, you know, 1992, it was hard to listen to something. Uh, there was no real way to listen to it without just going out and buying it. Mm-hmm. And but fortunately, I think the the song really holds up well, like on the page, just reading it. Uh, and so I could I could even you know from what I remembered of hearing it live and then reading it on the page, you know, it kind of it kind of lodged itself in my memory. I've I've noticed when I go to record stores. Um, and I look for, I always look for Dylan vinyl cause I don't have them all on vinyl and I'm willing to spend a certain, I don't play via uh, minute. We have a record player. Actually, we just got a brand new one for our, uh, it was one of our wedding gifts and supposedly it's really good. We got to try that. Um, but, um, I don't generally listen to Dylan on vinyl. I listen to it on my phone or whatever right. as, as, as has Bob surely intended. And, uh, but, but I always look cause I was like, Hey, if I can pick one up for a couple of bucks, I will. And I notice it's the same five records at uh-huh. used record stores. It's always Dylan. <laughs> oh, <laughs> That's wow. always that one. Wow. I find that one a lot. I find saved. Okay. I see that one a lot. Empire burlesque real live like it's always kind of like the same and hard rain i always find like the same four or five those are the ones that people presumably i guess don't like and they return or they sell it back to records or but i like i never see blood on the tracks i never see infidels you know i never see them used for sale people people actually uh hold on to those and by the way just as a one other note as we're wrapping up here for someone who you know, work does a Dylan podcast and I'm trying to do as, as complete a research as I can. Bob Dylan.com sometimes not helpful, which is yeah. a shame because it's presumably the site. But if you go to this song's page and it lists the records that it's on, it does not list the bootleg series with the alternate take sure. on it. Sure. It doesn't list that. It doesn't list the traveling through set, which that is on. So it's like, geez, guys, come on, update the site. What are you doing? I want to find out these things. I knew that because I have it. Then I'm right. like, wait, why does it not list traveling through? But it, it does not, man. You know, it's just kind of like, come on, guys, get, keep up. Um, so well, well, Wayne, I thank you so much for, for doing this. I really appreciate it. Again, we've been talking back and forth on Twitter for a long time. So uh, it was, I'm glad to finally have you on the show. Oh, this is totally my pleasure. I appreciate you uh, having me on. So as we wrap up here, uh, I have to ask you the exit question, which is if there's any Bob record or Bob recording that you could sit in on, what would it be? Well, you know, I've, I've thought about this question so many times because I hear it at the end of every episode. And, <laughs> and I can, I think of ways to try to game it, right? <laughs> you know, the Wilburys, because you've got all right, those. Sure. Yep, yep, yep. But I always come back to Infidels. Just because, you know, not only would I get to hear, you know, what, you know, the my original imprint of, of Bob Dylan, uh, but also all of the other songs, you know, Blind, Blind Will and Mattel and everything like that. I want to, 
I want to hear the conversation around blind willing Mattel where they're like, no, I just, you know, I don't think we got it, <laughs> you know, that, that kind of thing. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I just, I think, uh, I really think he was tapped into something pretty special when he was writing and recording, uh, infidels, at least for me, you know, it's one of my top albums. Imagine sitting through all 27 takes of too late slash foot of pride, <laughs> watching that evolve in front of you. That would be a pretty, pretty amazing experience. Yes. Well, again, that's a great answer. Uh, well, why don't you tell people where they can find you out on the internet? Sure. Uh, I guess the my main like public presence, if you can even call it that, is uh, on Twitter, WWalker98. Uh, I tweet about occasionally about Bob Dylan or board games, or I'll, I'll retweet something the something funny I saw. Uh, but so so don't don't expect a lot. But uh, but that's where that's where I am. All right, and I have to ask, why board games? What is, did you just love collecting board games? Yeah, um, I'm not collecting them so much as playing them, uh, but but yeah, it's just one of those things that it tickles the 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 right tickle spot in my brain to to sit down. You know, then we're talking about like hobbyist board games, things that are they're a little bit complex, but uh, you know, there's some challenge to them. So they're you know, and it's a, it's its own hobby. Uh, so that's kind of my other board games and Bob Dylan. All right. They, we need to combine those two at some point. There needs to be a Bob Dylan board game. Absolutely. You know, I mean, the guy's led enough of a life that you could come up with <laughs> places and situations and, you know, right. all these, you know, and you could have little character, you know, you're like the little piece would be like Monopoly pieces. You'd be like, I have like folk Bob and I have Rolling Thunder Bob and they're right. these little metal pieces. They got to get on. That. I mean, they're Bob's merchandising himself all over the place. Uh, sometimes in shady ways, so they should really just make a Bob Dylan. Just put it out there. I'd buy that. I'd buy a Bob Dylan board game. Come on, uh, I call dibs on Nashville skyline, Bob. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. So, uh, well, again, thank you so much, Wayne. I, I really appreciate it. Then, thanks everybody for listening. You, of course, can find all the episodes of the show on our website, FireAndWaterPodcast.com. You can subscribe to the show on any podcatcher of your choice. And if you want to support the Fire and Water Podcast Network, of which Pod Dylan is a part. Please go to patreon.com slash FW podcast like the fine folks did. Robert Ward, Steve Cronin, Max Hustle, George Doherty, Joaquin Meckel, Paul Ruther, and Henry Bernstein. So thanks very much uh, for listening, and we will see you later. Bye. This one's right up your alley. It's about doing good by manipulating the forces of evil. It's just like you.